Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It's hard to believe we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. You're telling me, producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a lot of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchase is made through our links. Give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. We covered a lot of great movies that were adapted from other material in season 10. Our originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals is where listeners can purchase the source material behind all our adapted film discussions. It helps support the show at no extra cost when you buy through our links. In our foreign language Best Picture nominees series, we looked at several adaptations, including Z, The Postman Il Postino, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and Letters from Iwo Jima. We hit the high seas with In the Heart of the Sea from Nathaniel Philbrick's nonfiction book for our Aquatic Killers series. Eh, definitely a weaker entry in that series. I bet the book is better. Oh, me too. Member bonus episodes featured adaptations like Gone Girl, The Russia House, Ivanhoe, The Hot Rock, The Big Heat, and Naked Lunch. Oliver Stone brought not just original stories, but also adaptations like Conan the Barbarian, Scarface, Year of the Dragon, Eight Million Ways to Die, Talk Radio, and Born on the Fourth of July. Mary Heron's disturbingly insightful American Psycho was adapted from the Brett Easton Ellis book. You like Huey Lewis in the news? Oh my God, it even has a watermark. And of course, more Stephen King with The Mist, The Green Mile, and The Shawshank Redemption for our King a la Darabont series. Find links to all of these books and more adapted films on our Originals page. That's thenextreel.com slash originals. Every purchase supports our show. Get the full list of books that we've talked about and start your next read today at thenextreel.com slash originals. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Wall Street is over. Money never sleeps, pal. From the director of Platoon, the next battle is in the greatest jungle of them all. 
Wall Street. We're going down the drain, okay? The stock is plummeting. When it hits 18, buy it all. Something big is going down. I want you to fill out the missing picture. Mr. Gecko, that's not exactly what I do. Where you can trade your honor. I can lose my license. That's inside information. For power. If you're not inside, you are outside. I want you with me, buddy. I'm with you, Gordon. Trade your peace of mind. Just the beginning, pal. If any trouble does arise, you are on your own. The trail does stop with you. For a piece of the action. A hundred million dollars, buddy. All it takes is a little inside information. I don't care where or how you get it. I think you owe me. And you can trade everything you believe in. He's using you, kid. But you're too blind to see it. For everything you've ever wanted. I get a strange call from the SEC. This is heavy, bud. Why do you need to wreck this company? Because it's wreckable, all right? Michael Douglas, Charlie Sheen, Daryl Hannah, Martin Sheen, and Oliver Stone film Wall Street. Andy, uh, there is, I don't know if you've heard this, there is an ancient forest-dwelling community of movie lovers. Oh, interesting. The, yes, and they've, they've come out of the woods, and now they're on the internet. The woodland internet-based community. <laughs> <laughs> What's the genus? <laughs> the genus species... Yes, and they uh, they congregate in a little place I like to call Discordia. Oh, okay. Uh, they do, uh, but they uh, they're just very special. It's a very special tribe. Do you, do you know anything about these? Have you ever heard of them, the Woodland movie lovers? I have. I've heard that this particular group um, loves to chat and communicate. It's very community based. There's a lot of a lot of constant. Uh, togetherness and uh, yes. the joy of cinema. Yeah. They're all nudists, though, so you should know that going in. <laughs> Just so <laughs> naked. Thank God it's all text-based. <laughs> uh, we are talking, of course, about the next real uh, uh, member-supported online community. We uh, it, we do a lot of episodes talking about movies every single week, and we sure appreciate the help and support of our uh, paying community members who, who join, who support the show with uh, some bucks every month, and uh, get access to early access to, to all of our shows uh, as we get them edited. Uh, they get access to live streams of most of our shows, and uh, not this one today, though, because we broke the internet. <laughs> so this one's going to be after the fact. Um, but, uh, you know, we just appreciate those people who come in, come along and say, you know, I listened to enough next reel that I'm going to, I'm going to help these guys pay for their shoes. And, um, because it, 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 it really, this is what we do. We do podcasts and this is a, the weirdest job you could possibly have, but it is what it is. And, uh, it means a great deal that, um, that you've at least considered supporting us uh, to do to do this and uh, that you get enough out of it we've got a lot of stuff coming up we've got a lot of we've got specials we've got uh marvel movie minutes coming back we've got all kinds of things ahead for a great 2021 so if you haven't checked it out head over to uh truestory.fm slash membership and you'll be able to see uh the next reels uh membership program and see what you get and all kinds of good stuff there anything i missed uh, no. In the immortal words of the people at the Change Bank, it's what we do. 
classic. <laughs> you bring me a nickel, I'll give you five pennies. That's right. Wall Street, Andrew. Welcome Wall to Wall Street. Street. Mm. Do you did you ever at any point uh, fancy yourself potentially uh, like a hedge fund hedge hedge fund manager, <laughs> hedgehog manager, hedgehog manager? Uh, where did you ever have any desire to go into the business of the street? No. Next question. <laughs> <laughs> You got nothing else? uh, You know, it's one of those jobs that I don't think I really knew what it was. And sometimes I still don't really feel like I get it. And I think that's always going to be my wall with this particular career. And I watch movies like this or, you know, Ewan McGregor had a great one that um, where he it was it was a uh, a true story about, you know, he was a stock trader and it was I can't remember what it was uh, called, but. When I watch it, everything kind of makes sense. I'm like, okay, okay. I think I, I understand this world. Sure, and then but as the soon second as you have to away, describe it to somebody. <laughs> I'm like, now what were they doing again? Yeah. I don't really understand. And I see all those people on the floor and, you know, <laughs> on the stock floor, and they're all like, buy, sell, buy, sell. And I'm like, okay, so if I call my stockbroker and I just say, hey, I want to sell these stocks, does that mean he calls up somebody and somebody runs down there and goes, I've got 20, 20 shares to sell? And like, I like, I don't, I don't fully get it. And so I try. Hey, hey, <laughs> buy, buy, sell, sell, eh? Exactly. I try, I try to imagine I get what's going going on here and yeah no you you don't, don't but especially weird because i i think based on what i understand of this which is i think about as much as you i, <laughs> I think it's very strange that oliver stone was able to make a documentary about gamestop before it happened <laughs> isn't that isn't this what it what it exactly what happened so I think this funny. was it. The only thing that the film is missing is a moment with Margot Robbie in a bubble bath describing yes. the specifics of what's actually happening. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this is a. Uh, uh, okay. So, Wall Street is legendary uh, Oliver Stone, right? Next to Platoon. I don't know. Maybe is this. I, I, this probably has easier appeal for a lot of people who might just have discovered Oliver Stone through this film and not Platoon. Would you agree? Yeah, for people not looking at war films, I mean, in a way, it is kind of a war film. Uh, you could see it that way. But it's definitely looking at a side of the greedy American culture that kind of really rose in the 80s. And that whole mentality, I mean, it was kind of based on the junk bond and inside trader scandals going on in the 80s. And it has that sensibility about it. And the whole thing with Gordon Gecko's, you know, greed is good diatribe that he has in this film, I think it fits very much with the Reagan era and all of that that kind of rose from that. And so, yeah, I think people clicked with the sensibilities uh, that came from this film and the idea of Gordon Gecko as a, I suppose you could say, almost a representation of the type of people who were... Um, in this industry you said i i agreed and we're going to come back to that but you said something uh a second ago that i think is worthy of 
further discussion, which is that this, you know, you could argue that this is a war film. I, I don't mean to take that comment too heavily, but what are the parallels that you see between this and Platoon as, uh, as sort of vintage Oliver Stone? You know, it's a story about a person who has thrusted a, a new person to an industry or to a particular place who's trying to find their place. And they're trying to figure out who they are through the context of this role that they that they're represented by. In the case of Platoon, it was Charlie Sheen as a soldier, a new soldier in Vietnam. And he has two very different uh, leaders who are kind of shaping the way that he sees the Vietnam War and, and helping him figure out what his place is in that, in the case of this film, you know, I mean, he's not new to the to the world, but Charlie Sheen's character, he's struggling. He's not really getting anywhere. And it's not until he meets Gordon Gecko, and that starts shaping his ideas and his perspective about how the game is played and how to get ahead. And he latches onto that. And so I can see a similarity in the type of character where you have a character who's trying to figure out his place in the world and deals with where that takes him over the course of the story. I think it actually has some some really direct parallels. If you look at the, you know, you have the two different kinds of leaders that you have or mentors that you have in Platoon. And here we have Gordon Gecko and, and Hal Holbrook, right? I mean, sure. representing the classic, classy kind of stock trading for wealth and value, long-term value building, and the shark, the like, I buy and sell to break things up because it can be done. I don't make anything, right? That kind of ideology. And I think that's, that is, this movie is testing the ideology of wealth and capitalism just the way Platoon is testing the ideology of America's involvement on foreign soil. And, and those are two things that I think repeatedly come back in Oliver Stone's work, right? Testing ideologies and worldviews through narrative. I, I think you have, like, you have a point that, you know, Bud in this, in this case isn't completely green, but I think you could say he is to the kind of world that he's introduced to in this movie. Like, he's a, he's on the, the, he's a broker on the sales floor, and he hasn't been introduced to the the kind of wealth. It, it, arguably, it's an entirely different planet from what he's been doing, even though they're still buying and selling stocks and companies. Yeah, it's a very different type of approach that he's taking here. It's interesting the way that you describe that. And and I had forgotten Hal Holbrook's character, but absolutely the, the parallels are completely clear with that character and Willem Dafoe's character as kind of the yeah. two more positive potential influences. And it's interesting because if you look at it that way, it's as if in Platoon, he ended up siding with uh, Tom Berenger's character only to realize partway through, oh, you know what? I really need to switch teams. <laughs> so you Don't can you see, think? Yeah, you can see it playing out that way. That's interesting. And, and you have to wonder that he cast Charlie Sheen <laughs> yeah. as that character. Like, we're just going to have you do the movie again. Like, we're just going right. to do it again, but you're not in a jungle. It's a different jungle this it time. Is a, yeah, it's still a jungle, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So I, I think that's an important thing because I feel like, and, and we'll see um, as we wrap up the series, like, I feel like this is something, this kind of, of ideologi ideological dialogue is something that Oliver Stone needs as a filmmaker, right? Yeah, I, I think he. I think it's a. It's sort of an anchor for his work, and and for what he's trying to communicate on film. I think that's a big part of Oliver Stone, and I think starting with 
Platoon and I, you know, I, well, I, I'd say starting with Midnight Express, which we didn't discuss in this series, but it's really kind of right beforehand. But that really is where I think Oliver Stone was figuring out, you know, I like this type of type of storytelling where there's, there's an ideology that I'm focusing on. And we've seen yeah. bits and pieces of his ideology throughout some of these other films that he has talked about how it's there. It's just these directors didn't necessarily latch on to kind of like these liberal ideas that he had in them. And I think Salvador certainly had more of them, even if it wasn't as successful a film. But starting with Platoon, that's really where he is able to start putting his ideologies out there and and kind of spelling things out a little more. And while that film still was very autobiographical about his time in Vietnam, it, it you know it had it was less focused on kind of the politics specifically more focused on kind of the people who were there when you get with this film this is where it really starts shaping his ideas and and saying and seeing his world view about things and and he's really starting to push um his perspective on things that aren't necessarily as personal right 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 these are the movies that that define his generation yeah right right yeah. So before we jump into kind of more of the people and everything involved, I have a question for you because I, I, I noticed this throughout the film. Specifically, he starts the film off with a montage of New York, like the people and the places waking up. It's kind of like the sunrise is coming up and we see the fish markets, some homeless people. We see people going to work. And then we kind of slowly are moving into the city and, and it's the subway. Meanwhile, Frank Sinatra's Fly Me to the Moon is playing. And it felt very much like over the course of the film, we see shots of the city and all that. And it feels like Stone is reminding us that intrinsically, this is a New York story. Um, it's, it's, it takes place in the city. Does that, does that matter? Do you think, does it, I mean, does it, does pointing out the fact so much throughout the film that the wall street is right here in New York city, does it need that? Does it help in any way? What are your thoughts? Well, I guess the question back to you is, it, can you make this movie anywhere else? Well, you can't, but you don't necessarily need to point out so overtly throughout that, hey, this is look at the people on the fish market. Look at all these little parts of the city that are waking up. Like All of that stuff doesn't necessarily tie specifically into the story, but Oliver Stone chooses to use it. And so does that matter, I guess? I, I don't know if we needed all of that um, other than just kind of setting things up. I don't know. I, I think we do. I, I think we do because I think this is this is not just a story about business and Wall Street and a thing that can only happen on Wall Street, right? I mean, at least in the 80s, it was this and Tokyo and London, right? I mean, those were the big three. And now I think there are big stock exchanges and lots of other places. I'm not, I don't, I'm not aware of them, but I, I just feel like so much of what this movie is trying to say is locked pretty firmly in New York culture, right? In, in just what it means to be a New Yorker and what it means to, you know, get the suits that you get in New York to get the, like it's, it, it it is what it is because of New York, and so much of it is just uh, him uh, Stone really um, getting interested in the kinds of people who work here, right? On just figuring out, like actually coming into contact with these gecko like 
businessmen in New York and have all the houses and trade all the time and never, never sleep, right? It's just, this is is what it is. It becomes like, th- this is a reflection of these people that he was coming in contact with as he was making other movies prior. And, uh, and, and I think, I think it really is so much of, of what he's trying to do is say that this is an identity that can't be separated from its location. I think that's fair. Yeah, I suppose so. And I mean, we do hear, you know, uh, Bud, Charlie Sheen's character, talking a lot about where he's going to live, where he lives now, what he's trying to do. He talks to the realtor. Um, you know, there's plenty of restaurants that we oh, uh, kind Upper of East Side, West visit. Side, like yeah, yeah, right. So yeah, I, I think that there is something about about that um, because even in context of the city, it's it, it, and and parts of the city that become so prevalent to w- what your identity is seen as. Then of course you have the people who live outside the city, and when when he goes off to the to the beach houses and stuff like that. And so right, I think that right. there is something about the city that I think by nature of it being a film about wall street, it does um, lend itself to it. So, yeah, I mean, I agree. It just, it, I, I thought it was interesting that he focuses on so many things in his montage that weren't specifically wall street that were much more specifically New York. But um, yeah, I, I, I think it does fit. Have you, have you spent much time in New York city? I've never been. You've never been. Nope. I know. Oh, no. Yeah, you should fix that. I mean, not right now. <laughs> so, okay, I, I got to go. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, you know, I sang in college, right? I don't know if you remember yeah, that. I it, this was bef- when I was going to school in New Jersey, we used to go into New York City and sing on Wall Street and uh, for tips, like outside the bars. And at the end of the day, we were singing this song um, um, called Forbidden Angel. And it's a song about uh, the. It's like a couple singing to one another about their how how bad they feel that they're having an affair because of their spouses that are at home wondering where they are. And we sang it, and this guy walks out of this bar. The stockbroker, he's in his suit. He's full, kind of you know, end of the day. He's kind of loosened his tie, but not too much. And he comes out and he gives us gives us a tip, a hundred dollars, and he sniffles and starts crying and walks away. <laughs> but, end of story. Yeah, that's that's my New York Wall Street story <laughs> oh my god he's crying brokers that's what i bring to the table sounds about uh, right sounds about right so uh, it uses the camera in fun ways though uh you, you gotta you gotta admit like the way he jumps into wall street kind of introducing us to the frenzy by way of frenzied camera what'd you think oh it's all over the place i loved it like the jib moves the dolly moves just really fast in and out of uh charlie's face or other people's faces or different things like whip pans along the little stock ticker in the room uh sometimes there were like crash zooms uh when the market would open it got to a point where he was doing split screens and that's where of course stone's cameo pops up it was really fun it was so alive and which was very different than when we were spending time with bud and his dad which was much more grounded and real when we were in the stock market it was like a feeding frenzy which i think that he and uh, his co-writer talk about and as stone said he was making a move about sharks about feeding frenzies um bob richardson the dp and i wanted the camera to become a predator there's no let up until you get to the fixed world of charlie's father where the stationary camera gives you a sense of immutable values and i thought that was yeah. uh, very apparent and i really enjoyed the life that it brought to the story 
I think so too. I think it's uh, it is an animated way into the film. Like it really, I mean, it, it gets you excited. Like there's this visceral kind of piece uh, that that comes with it that it it allows us into this world without feeling like we have to know everything about the world that's going on. Right? We're just yeah. we know we're going into a machine. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Do you want to talk about little Charlie? I want to talk about little Charlie. Uh, <sighs> Had he? How do I say this delicately? Had Charlie started deteriorating already? <laughs> like between Platoon and this movie, had he started deteriorating? I don't think the deterioration started until after this, but I, now that I know where he ended up, I feel like there are hints of it here. Which is funny because his character isn't like a, you know, isn't using drugs or anything like that. No. he's He's fairly normal but yes he is obsessed he has his obsession about money and more and bigger and better and it's it's definitely apparent with him what did you think though of his performance i thought it was fine i i i didn't really have issues with his performance per se i thought it worked in context of the story he seems to grow a little more greedy and kind of fall in with gecko as it goes and i liked that transformation i had issues with how he was written periodically and how the script kind of took shortcuts with some things like when he had his um moment of kind of that who am i sort of moment and moments toward the end where the script just kind of sped through some of these things and i was like wait when did all of a sudden he start feeling this way it, it took me by surprise I don't know if, if Sheen could have played it any differently to improve it. I felt really like they were script problems. I didn't have specific issues with him. Did you? Yeah, I did. But I want to get to your point because I think you're exactly right. I think the the movie cheats. The script cheats because I think Stone knows that we know that this is kind of a Pilgrim's Progress story and he's going to redeem himself at the end of the movie and kind of get to the other side. I mean, Stone has said as much like we we know the archetype. And so the script gets away with with cheating us into to knowing how he's feeling, even though he never demonstrates it. Like, I, I think that's a I think that's a an astute observation. My challenge is, and it becomes most apparent for me when I'm watching Martin and Charlie on screen at the same time. And Martin Sheen, who is extraordinary craftsman, right, on screen. He is an extraordinary performer. And he is is exhibiting the kind of, like, uh, both sort of patriarchal stoicism and deep grief and anger. And he's doing it all with the slightest of motions and looks and steely gazes and twitches of facial muscles that, that are just the, the work of a real artist. And Charlie, in response, is acting with his forehead. Like, he's doing this thing where he's, like, nodding every time he gets mad. He's nodding his head and boom, da bing, bang, dad, you never knew me. Oh, head, head, head. And I, it feels like he's, like, one of those, like, birds, the water bird desk accessories. Like, he's just, like, nodding. And I realize this guy is not up to this movie. He's not up to anybody else's craft in this movie. Not a single person on here couldn't act circles around this guy. And uh, we give him a lot of, of leeway because he did the same role pretty well in Platoon. 
Well, he also never in platoon went down Tom Berenger's um, path. Right. That's true. I I just feel like even early on when he's trying to be super like uh, genuine and uh, like authentic and bring Blue Star Airlines into the fold and it's everything's going to be great. Trust me. I know this guy. He still just is isn't able to keep up with anybody else on screen with him. I swear, <laughs> McGinley is like the comedic like moment in this movie, and his is a more authentic performance than anything Sheen gives us on the in this movie. And I'm not saying like I hate it as a result. I'm just saying he was outclassed. And here is the money quote from Oliver Stone when asked about Sheen's performance. Uh, I don't think, well, the whole thing is Charlie, to me, when I did Platoon, was a wonderful potential movie star. He didn't have those kinds of or- ordinary movie star looks, but he had a certain quality that came from Martin, honesty of expression. We played with it in Platoon and also Wall Street, but by the time Wall Street was ending as a film, Charlie was definitely more interested in money, and being in the Wall Street world certainly sharpened his appetites. So after that, it seemed to me that he was on a path to make big money because he wasn't paid a lot for the two movies with me. Uh, Do you think that drew him away from exploring his talent? I think Charlie never developed his intellect that much. I mean, he had great instincts, but growing up as a child of an actor, you fall into these patterns. So you can act, but you don't think about why. And sometimes I feel Charlie was ignoring those principles and was just insensitive to himself. Andy, that is exactly descriptive of my experience with Charlie Sheen. I felt like he was just saying the words and emoting what felt like the right thing to emote because his instincts are good, but he had no idea why he was doing anything on screen at any given moment. I certainly think there's something to that. I I think it's being a little harsh on him because... Weirdly, I think because the persona that Charlie Sheen kind of puts off anyway, I actually buy a lot (laughs) of him because (laughs) he already carries this kind of sleazier persona about him. This slick, maybe sleazy is the wrong word, but slick, know-it-all sort of persona. And so I end up buying so much of it. But you're right. There are those moments where he's exhibiting his anger or his he's, you know, thinking about things internally. Those are the moments that I have a harder time connecting with him. So I agree. Absolutely. (laughs) And then you get to Gecko and Gecko, who is, I think, beautifully softened. Right. Because they make him early on, they make him a fan of the arts and culture and they put him on a beach staring at the sunrise, talking about just wistfully how beautiful it is. And I've never seen a painting that can capture the kind of majesty that is, you know, my Hamptons sunrise, Uh, even though. As the as the movie transforms, you realize that it turns out he's exactly as duplicitous as you think he's going to be, and he's just a terrible person, and he's greedy, and greed is good, and blah blah blah. They make him multidimensional, right? Insofar as this this film, um, you know, exists to demonstrate some pretty black and white ideology. Uh, they do. I, I think Stone does a, a noble job making Gecko a multi-dimensional personality, and to have him standing at these parties talking about the you know all the great stuff and the cigars and all the things that he appreciates, and then have Sheen just staring at him 
like a derp dope. Like he just has (laughs) no recognition of any of the stuff that's going on on screen. I I think it makes for an interesting fish out of water story that ultimately needs to needs a little bit more of a, a little bit more strength. That's pretty funny. What you said about Gecko, it actually made me think that the way that he's written in those moments is a little bit like Burt Lancaster's character in local hero. Okay. Do you remember that one where he's, he's kind of that really quirky, weird boss who, who has those moments on the beach and is just all, you know, he about the comet or whatever. He's just such a weird, quirky, rich guy. And Gecko is totally written that way until he becomes like this duplicitous businessman, which I think is pretty funny. Yes, ab- it's absolutely true. And I think Burt Lancaster might have been an interesting casting choice for this. <laughs> <laughs> he was actually, uh, Oliver Stone was trying to get him into this film. He actually, um, because films like Sweet Smell of Success were such influences for him when he was putting this film together, he was actually working with Burt Lancaster trying to get him in in a bit part role uh, somewhere in the film. It just never ended up working out schedule wise, but I couldn't help but think that would have been fantastic. Okay. So I I have, uh, so I want to run some other casting ideas by you and see what you think. Oh, we're going to, are we going to do our armchair recast game? Well, these are people who had been in talks in one way or another. So Tom Cruise, he really wanted the role of Bud Fox. What do you think of Tom Cruise instead of Charlie Sheen? hundred percent, a hundred percent. Okay. Yes. Okay. This would have been, this would have been the era of Rain Man. Rain Man came out a year later. Yep. So yeah. Yep. Oh, I, I and think I think it would have be been perfect because this would have been a spiritual sequel to Risky Business. And and his uh, going up against Gordon Gecko would have been a spiritual prequel to A Few Good Men. <laughs> oh my God, you're so right. <laughs> that would have been great. Okay, yeah. Michael Douglas as Gordon Gecko. This is going to be hard for me to imagine anybody else. I think Douglas does a pretty bang up job. Here. I completely agree. Apparently, uh, Oliver Stone's first two choices were Richard Gere and Warren Beatty. I have a really um, hard time with those two. Yeah, I don't see either one of them. Yeah. James Woods apparently was offered the part, but turned it down to act in the film Cop, which I never saw. That was a mistake. Well, I am glad he did because I don't see yeah. him in the role either. Yeah, no, I hundred uh, percent. What about Al Pacino as Gecko? Yeah, yes. You know why? Because we've seen it. He was in Oceans Thirteen. <laughs> right. Whatever love... you think of Oceans Thirteen, uh, Pacino can handle that kind of role. I can yes. see him doing it. Oh, totally. I, I yeah. totally see that too. And last but not least, William Peterson. Oh, William Peterson. No, he's too soft. I think there could be an edge with him, though. I think there could be an interesting edge. Um, I I think Al Pacino of the bunch is the one that I would say works the best. But I think William Peterson could do something interesting with it. Okay, uh, maybe I I feel like I maybe I need to go watch some some Peterson again. But I think he's I think he's a little bit soft around the edges to to pull that off. Interesting. He's a little too. He's just he's got no sharp edges, Peterson. <laughs> Well, Michael Douglas, you know, he was looking for uh, something a little edgier, a little darker. I mean, this is the same year he actually was doing Fatal Attraction. In fact, he was doing Fatal Attraction the same time he was doing this film. And the scheduling to avoid scheduling conflicts, they actually had to he was jumping back and forth over the course of any given week between these two films, which I think is crazy i can't wow. imagine how complicated that is for an actor to kind of in your head space to go from one character to the other one character like this to the character in that 
Uh, I think those are very different characters. I mean, it's not like the fail attraction. He wasn't like a broker by day, right? Wasn't he like a, I can't even remember what he did. Was he like a psychiatrist or something? (laughs) I just don't remember. I don't remember. Yeah. Yeah. that's, That's really interesting though. And, and you can, now that I think about it, though, I'm like, okay, he did have the same haircut in yeah, that film. That's right. So that makes sense. Um, he, but he was doing stuff like romancing the stone and wanted something a little darker and edgier. And so I think it's funny when you see uh, that you know this year he was doing this and Fatal Attraction. I think he succeeded on both counts. Yeah, I do too. I do too. That's amazing. Yeah, always liked that guy. Michael. Yeah, oh, I think he's great. He'd be an interesting uh, person to do a series uh, yep. focusing on, even just like stuff that he produced or something. I think he's an, another really interesting uh, person in the world of film. Mm, totally agree. I guess you know he was um, he was a fan of the script, but he said he had he had never seen a script with so many monologues that would be just like one block going down like three pages of one person speaking, a lot of which was him. And so yeah. he actually had to work with a speech instructor to get better be- breath control because the dialogue was just so rapid fire and the monologues were so long. And at the time he made this, he was smoking forty cigarettes a day. What? <laughs> What is that? Like two packs? Is that a two pack? I don't know. I've never, I've never had. I can't remember. I don't know how many cigarettes. Like, yeah, that's not even. What is it? Three by? Is it eighteen? I don't know how many. It's got to be. Maybe I thought it was two by ten, but maybe it's how many cigarettes (laughs) in a pack? We are digging for the important stuff, folks. Yeah, twenty. There are twenty. Okay. Yeah. So two pack. Twenty cigarettes in a pack. Um, and then he he modeled his performance after his friend Pat Riley, who is the head coach of the LA Lakers at the time. Oh, I, okay. I guess I could see that. Yeah. But what's interesting is that Stanley uh, uh, Weiser, who co-wrote the script with with Stone, I think they met in film school. Um, he said that when he was writing some of Gecko's dialogue, he was actually patterning it after Oliver Stone himself, who actually spoke this way which I think is very funny. <laughs> That's awesome. What do you think of some of those big monologues? Like the, the stuff that Gecko has, uh, has really made iconic. You know, I mean, the big one, of course, is the, um, is the one when he's at the uh, annual stockholder meeting. And um, that is the one that he says, greed is good and all this sort of stuff, and has a lot of interesting comments in his speeches. I think Michael Douglas delivers it in a way it's easy to get sucked into what he's saying and to buy into it because it's like, yeah, this is great. He's got a lot of uh, personality and he exhibits that charm that makes me want to just kind of go along with him. Right. And I think that's what he is doing so well when he's having these moments in, in the, uh, in the script. And I just think Michael Douglas carries that off. A lot of it is his persona, but I I think he brings a lot to the role, just the way he's performing it. Well, and it's really smart writing too, because what he has done is in the, in the course of that speech, he makes, he's the, comes in as the evildoer, but he makes the company leadership out to be worse. And that pivot that he does in that particular speech is, is quite artful. Yeah. Quite artful drafting. I also think it's really funny that this is another perfect example of lines that are remembered for being said in a different way. We've already talked about a couple of these films. We had, Casablanca with the played again Sam line, which is never said. And then, of yeah. course, there's We Don't Need No Stinking Badges, which is never said in Treasure of the Sierra Madre, which is never said. 
greed is good, that isn't actually actually said. He says greed, for lack of a better word, is good. I think that's funny how how people remember things these ways. Because what is the actual badges line in Sierra Madre? He says, badges? We ain't got no badges. We don't need no badges. I don't have to show you any stinking badges. Okay, yeah. That's yeah. funny. Yeah. That's really funny. So it's it's very much paraphrased in in kind of all three cases. Yeah, totally. Yeah, shorthand. Yep. Okay, who else do we have? Oh, uh, how about Daryl Hannah? Oh, we, you know, I feel like we should pair Daryl Hannah and Sean Young together uh, because one, they're both replicants. Two, I think that <laughs> <laughs> it's funny that Sean Young from I mean, we've always heard crazy stories about Sean Young and the stuff she does to try getting roles, the way that she behaves, all this sort of stuff. In this film, she was not showing up on time. She was ill prepared. She was, um, you know, just very rude. Like Charlie Sheen had a, a huge issue with her. They just were butting heads all the time. There was supposed to be an affair scene that had been written in the script, but they hated each other so much that Oliver Stone took it out because he didn't even think he could probably shoot it. Sean Young thought she should be playing Darian because she thought she would be a much better Darian, and she thought that Daryl Hannah should just be fired. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think is hilarious. And Oliver Stone, because Sean Young was so difficult, he actually diminished her role greatly over the course of the production. Honestly, though, I think Sean Young would have made a better Darian because I think Daryl Hannah is terrible in the role of Darian. And apparently she does, too. And Oliver Stone seems to blame himself for casting her and then also for not directing her as well as as he could. He says that Daryl Hannah needs a very... Uh, I can't remember the specific words, but a very good director, somebody who knows how to handle and get out of her exactly what they need. And she just never could understand this character. She was at odds with everything this character represented and just and just had a hard time. And I just it's rough watching her in this role. It is rough. It felt like she just didn't want to be there. Like, I didn't yeah. even get a sense that she was interested in being in this movie. That right. was that was right. probably the hardest, uh, most heartbreaking part, and I don't I, I don't understand it. Like it's not a terrible movie to be associated with. You know what I mean? Like you're you're kind of living the dream in, in a movie like this. Like just you know, be friends. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah, make it work. Uh, anyway, that, it, it was rough. It was rough watching. It becomes a whole storyline that that is ridiculous. I'm just ready to move on every time it's on screen. And can we talk for a minute? about that ridiculous design job she does on his apartment. <laughs> I couldn't help but think that that these design things, like when you see these in a movie, that they're just doing what they can to like push it into like whatever is the most ultra chic, instantly passe after like, you know, a week, right? Nobody's going to be mm -hmm. interested in that style. And that's exactly, exactly what, what she it felt does. like. And it's yeah. just like, hmm, yeah, no. Oh, thanks. Yeah, it's terrible. Even he, he, I actually love the little moment where she introduces him to the smiling faces, the, <laughs> the painting in his entry hall, and it's uh, and and he has no idea what to do with it. And she's just telling him, "You just need to. You'll love it. You'll yeah, love it. Right. You'll love it because others will love you for loving it." Exactly. And and I think that's so much part of the of you know what Stone is trying to demonstrate with this movie about like wealth and greed and you know acquisition that. Act, this is a movie about act, the value of acquisition for acquisition's sake to yeah. humanity. And uh, the, his apartment is a, a shining, horrible beacon for why that's 
that's a terrible thing. It becomes a uh, very much a representation of the point that is brought up in the story at some point when somebody is like, how many boats do you need or something like that? Because it's like, that's what happens with this mentality is it's like, once you have a hundred thousand dollars from a deal what does it matter if you get another ten thousand dollars out of it but they want that and they want to more and they constantly want more and it's always about more 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 and it's um yeah it's uh, interesting and so yeah should we talk a little bit more uh, I, I just want to kind of a couple more points about martin sheen i know we were already talking about yeah. how much we love him in the movie and how great it is seeing martin sheen actually playing uh charlie's uh father in the movie i thought that was really fun to see i guess charlie sheen it sounds like oliver stone kind of gave him the option of hey do you want to have jack lemon play your dad or or your dad play your dad and he picked his dad which i think is very sweet yeah Um, and i just love that um i did think this was funny though um martin sheen actually worked with Kirk Douglas in the movie The Final Countdown in 1980. And now, in this particular film, their sons are working opposite each other. <laughs> and also, Michael uh, Martin, Martin Sheen is, had actually already worked with Michael Douglas in an episode of The Streets of San Francisco. And they worked together in The American President. So there's a lot of cross between all these different Sheens and Douglases. Practically one family, man. Don't even ask. <laughs> Pretty much. Uh, I did like him, and I liked the whole sort of union thing. I think he, I think he did a great job. That scene, the showdown in the awful apartment, where he laughs and walks out, and they have yeah. their little exchange on the street. That's the scene that really lingers with me because Martin Sheen's so good. He doesn't have a huge role in this movie, but man, is he good! He works really well in in, the, yeah. in this particular role. Other any other cast you want to just run through that you were excited to see? I got one, and I think you have the same one. Uh, well, I just, I mean, it was a cast of a lot of great faces that we saw here. John C. McGinley, Terrence Stamp. Wait wait, 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 wait. Let's just do the one that you're most excited about at the same time. Okay. Okay. Um, Are you ready? Let me think who that is. Okay. One, two, three. Richard James Dysart. Karen. Oh, Richard <laughs> Dysart. Sure. Yes. <laughs> You're just picking names, man. No, it's just James Karen because I worked on a movie with him. So it was nice to see him. Oh, okay. All right. But yes, Richard Dysart because of our Richard Dysart series. Because of our Richard Dysart series. (laughs) And because we talked to him. That's right. On the floor. (laughs) That was so great. Um, Yeah, I thought he was great. He was great. He was great. Small scene, but it was nice to watch him get chewed yeah. out um i i think hal holbrook was a treat um to to watching this terrence stamp as as sir larry uh was great love that they they used him to buy the company out from under gecko i think it was a great twist mcginley was super funny i just <laughs> everything about him i think is great and once again like his i it it's becomes more clear every time i see mcginley that it's his identity and not necessarily tropes from but or, or that his identity is that he collects tropes from past movies and works them into future characters <laughs> and and they work great they work great he's just he's That's he's funny. a collector that yeah. is funny you didn't mention when you mentioned Hal Hallbrook, but that character is kind of written on and based on Stone's own father, who had worked as a broker, as a, as a stockbroker back in the in the, um, uh, the way long ago in the twenties or something, right? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, yeah, or at yeah. least the fifties. Um, no, here you go. Yeah, inspired by his phone, father, Lou Stone, who was a broker during the Great Depression at Hayden Stone. 
Mm-hmm. So, um, but when they went to make this movie, realized how different the world was of this, because actually this wasn't even the movie that they were hoping to make. He and Stanley were actually, what I found interesting, they were trying to make a movie about the 50s quiz show scandals, which eventually Robert Redford would make um, with quiz show. Um, but in the process of of this, they they started or they looking into Wall Street, they realized just how much it had changed. And they said, oh, this would be great to actually do a story about this world. And so I think the um, uh, his relationship with his dad is is clearly everywhere in this movie. And when he's talking about, you know, how his his dad left him, you know, nineteen thousand dollars on his deathbed and said, you know, kiddo, you got I, I I got you a start and a college education, but I don't have a lot of money left to give you. I had fun spending it. I had a great <laughs> life. Uh, <laughs> I feel like that's uh you know if if only we have that to give wall street stone says was a really personal movie it was disguised biography pretty interesting yeah another example i mean because he he had literally just done this with platoon right exactly exactly yeah we'll have to see what we can find biographically in uh talk radio when we do that next week (laughs) right right Um, I only wanted to bring up one other performer. Um, I mean, I enjoy all the faces that we see in here. Um, James Spader, Saul Rubinek, a lot of different people that we've seen in other projects that pop up here. But the one I wanted to bring up was Sylvia Miles, who is an Oscar nominee. She's a fairly uh, big supporting kind of uh, character player. She plays the realtor who we find out in the sequel that her name is Dolores. And that was what I wanted to bring up is that she is, I think, maybe other than Michael Douglas, the only actor who is uh, reprising their role in the sequel. And and she's still the realtor, which is so which is the funny part. Yeah, I know. I'd forgotten <laughs> that she was uh, that it was played by the same character. That's or the same actress. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, interestingly, they actually, this was a script that there, there was a lot of concern by people on wall street that it was going to be kind of a one-sided attack on the, that world. And stone actually, um, had a few people on board to kind of be technical advisors and they actually, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, before you finish that sentence, it was a one-sided attack on that world, right? Like we agree. It's, no, 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 no. It's not. No, I look at Hal <laughs> Holbrook's character. This and this is this is why Hal Holbrook's character is the way he is. This is very specifically because of this letter that he had from these advisors. They wrote a critique of the film and brought up all the different points. One of which was that all of the characters, it was unrealistic because all of them were morally bankrupt. Hal Holbrook's character eventually also um, takes a uh, takes a deal. And they said, you have to show that there are some people who aren't bad, that it's not a completely corrupt industry. And that's why his character was the way he was. I just I'm just saying, like, if you step back on this movie and you look at what Hal Holbrook represented to you in this movie, to to me, he was the dinosaur, right? He was the thing everybody had moved beyond. I didn't feel like he was this bastion of integrity because there was only one of him, right? Everybody else was out for the hustle. And to me, like the entire firm was out there not representing Holbrook's values as the, his character's values, but trying to undermine them. Well, yes and no. We also, I mean, not everybody is doing what 
Bud does. Not everybody is going to jail by the end of the film. Not okay. everybody is corrupted. I, I guess that's not the question. That wouldn't be the question. The question is, would everybody have been corrupted had they been presented the same deal? <laughs> that's a good question. Yeah, I don't know. And, uh, you know, to a large extent, you might be right. But I, I do think that at least it helps, maybe is the way to to phrase it by having Hal Holbrook's character be the way he is. You know, it's not completely yeah. one-sided. It's not an attack, which is certainly something that Oliver Stone would be, um, you know, said to be doing with other films where some of his films were pointed out as being much more one-sided yeah. than this film is necessarily. Although that's interesting because, you know, this is something that is brought up that Michael Douglas has brought up. And I think this is the sort of thing that comes up with these films. Like when a filmmaker makes a film like this or Martin Scorsese makes the Wolf of Wall Street and people say, oh, you know what? I, I joined up with Wall Street after I saw your character. Like Michael Douglas says, he still has people who come to him and will say when they saw Wall Street, they or when they saw the movie, and saw Gordon Gecko, they went to Wall Street and got a job. And he said that makes him sad because he was supposed to be the bad guy. And But people look at him as the one that is the draw, not Bud Fox, not the person who, who sides in the end with what's right. And um, the, it does have kind of this anti-greed message over the course of the film, but it's seen as a representation of greed and I think that's what, um, you know, some of these films sometimes struggle with because the wrong people latch on to those big characters and they say, oh, Gordon Gecko, he's so cool. I want to be just like him. That's gross. It's like you, you mistook the protagonist. Do you yeah, know what I mean? Exactly. Like, it's not that wasn't the right guy. Yeah. That's totally. trappings. Yeah. yeah that's yeah. hard to watch. Um, who else? Anybody else excite you? You want to, uh, uh, or you want to talk about the location? Yeah, let's, uh, you know, just going through the crew, Robert Richardson, yeah. I think does a great job with the camera, a very kind of orange brown look through a lot of the city throughout the film. I thought that the tone really kind of captured kind of that, I don't know, it was a feel that worked really well in context of the story. Well, it does because it works across all of their different shooting locations, right? When they're shooting in the Hamptons, when they're shooting those sunrises, you get a lot of those deep oranges. But as soon as you go into some of the, like the trading floors, the offices, they're like Gecko's office is, is antique, right? It's lots of wood. It's beautiful. It's like that. It's rich with modern trappings. And I think, I think that they picked a really nice tonal family. Yeah, no, it looks great. Really works nicely. Okay. Can we talk about Stuart Copeland? Well, yeah, music. Uh, Stuart Copeland did the music. Um, it's a film that I think I focused more on the songs that played. There were a lot of like talking heads, uh, different things that played throughout the film that sometimes they fit. Sometimes I was like, huh, this is an interesting choice. Um, the score itself, I can't really, I don't think much of. What did you think of it? Well, I'm a big, I'm a big Stuart Copeland fan, which is weird, especially because a lot of his scores in the eighties, uh, were, you know, kind of could fall very quickly into the things that I don't like about scores of the eighties. Um, but there was, I, I just think this one, it, I like it. It was one of his earlier things, right? Like he was still very much policey or maybe was, was he already out of the police but there was this and then he did the equalizer and the equalizer is the theme that really sticks with me and i think defines a lot of of what he's doing here 
and like you can get a sense that he's figuring out oh this is how you do this is how you do scores and then he ends up with a hell of a career of some amazing scores uh no i really i really like it i don't know if i'd say amazing scores certainly a lot of scores but like looking through the list of films that that stewart has scored over the years uh we'll see how he does with talk radio when we're talking about that next week but i mean i look through his list of yeah you're right amazing is too generous geez i mean i just don't remember i'd say robust (laughs) yeah Uh, but i don't see anything that i go oh wow that Really is great. I mean, Central Station, actually, I really love that film. I, I can't remember the score, but I just don't rem- I just don't know if I have much to say about what he does music wise. I think what I, I think what I can say is that much of my opinion of Stuart Copeland as a as a composer for film is defined by my memories of Stuart Copeland as a as an instrumentalist with the police. And sure. that is uh, like I'll I'll absolutely admit to that. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Certainly has been busier in the video game world more recently yep. than the film world. So, yeah. Yeah. Nope. What's, what's, I don't know. I guess for me, sad uh, is that Jerry Goldsmith, one of my 10 J's of composing, uh, just I absolutely love Jer- Jerry Goldsmith, scored the film originally. Oliver Stone was unhappy with the music, fired him, and brought Stewart on instead. I, w- I don't know if Jerry Goldsmith's music has ever been released. I'd love to hear what it sounded wow. like. Yeah. Uh, but you're right about the soundtrack. There are some songs that are iconic of the of the era too. Yeah, a lot talking of talking heads, Dave Byrne. The talking head stuff is yeah. what really sticks out for me. Um, yeah, and his wife was actually in the film, which I didn't even know until I was doing some research. But his wife was uh, she played um, Bud's secretary. She was Adele Lutz. So mm-hmm. yeah, that was fun. Yeah. Do do you have any facts and tidbits that we need to fact or tidbit? <laughs> you know, I do have a couple. One, I just I always have to bring this up when it comes up when I have the opportunity. Charlie Sheen, he does work really well in movies like Hot Shots and Hot Shots Part Two, which I really enjoyed. I thought those were very funny movies. And in Hot Shots Part Two, uh, he he is on a river and there's a scene that is made to look like he's having an apocalypse now sort of a moment he and his team are on a riverboat going through the jungle and they pass through the fog they pass willard on his boat from apocalypse (laughs) now and the two boats kind of pass each other and the two characters stand up and look at each other and they both say i loved you in wall street (laughs) oh i just never got sick of that moment. It's so good. Yeah, it's a good moment. So fun. It's a good bit. But but more importantly, Andy, tell me about the lizard. <laughs> it's the Cyrtodactylus uh, gordon geckoi. <laughs> it's a species of gecko that was actually named after Gordon Gecko. And I just think that is just amazing that here we have an actual gecko that is essentially named the Gordon Gecko. Um, it lives over, uh, it looks like it's it's a small island in Indonesia is where it is. I, I love how they screw up the spelling because of Gordon Gecko, right? Because Gecko is spelled, Gordon Gecko is J-E-K-K-O. But you don't spell gecko that way. It's C-K-O. That's correct. And so in the name of the gecko, they actually spell gecko wrong. Gordon (laughs) Gecko-y. G-E-K-K-O-I. That's the the joy of these Latin names that people get to come up with. So, yeah. 
Uh, all right. Uh, so we've talked a little bit. We know that there is a sequel slash remake. There, there was yeah the sequel. The sequel was uh, Wall Street Money Never Sleeps, which, as you pointed out earlier, is an actual line in this film. And the focus on that, of course, is Gordon Gecko now that he's out of prison, and the financial world is totally much different than uh, than what he dealt with. This, interestingly, I suppose, I don't know, is the only sequel that is in anything that Oliver Stone has ever made. I don't know if it just speaks to the types of stories he's drawn to, but there is that. And I don't know if this is, this certainly doesn't count as a sequel, but I think in context of what I was saying earlier about the, these people who are drawn to Gordon Gecko as kind of an idol type of character, there is, I thought, it's very much kind of a spiritual sequel. There's a film that came out in 2000 called Boiler Room that, uh, I mean, the characters in that film, it's, it's very much the same sort of world where you have these characters who are, um, you know, talking around trying to make a lot of money and uh ben affleck's in it um uh, giovanni rubisi is the main character vin diesel's in it um but these people worship gordon gecko like they watch that scene when he's saying greed is good and it's like their mantra and uh, so i definitely think that it's worth checking out if you're a fan of this movie or these types of characters there's that part where Giovanni Rubisi is putting all of his money on that one mining company that's trying to find unobtainium. It's a real, <laughs> real nail biter. You. Uh, okay, how to do an award season? Not too bad. Ten wins, five other nominations. What's interesting is that of the ten wins, nine of those went to Michael Douglas for his performance in the film. Speaking to how much his performance here really stuck in society at this particular time. Um, he won at the Oscars, Best Leading Actor. And what's interesting is Oliver Stone, actually, he said that over at 20th Century Fox, which released the film, they weren't so enthusiastic about the film. They thought it was going to be a hard one to push for awards consideration. And so instead, they focused all their attention on broadcast news, on all their kind of pushes for awards and everything. Broadcast news went on to get uh, seven nominations, this film only got the one nomination and then broadcast news went on to not win any oscars and this film did win its one oscar so hmm. there you go um you go. like i said all uh, michael douglas he won eight other awards one of which was the golden globes and his only the only loss that he had of the nominations he received was at the new york film critics circle awards and he lost to jack nicholson this is one of those weird ones for Ironweed, The Witches of Eastwick, and Broadcast News. Again, three versus one, I guess. The only other win that the film had was at the Razzies for Worst Supporting Actress, Daryl Hannah. Well, that checks out. It does. It's just, you know, we, we hate the, the Razzies, Razzies. But yeah. Yeah. But, but I get how, it, how that happened. Yeah. All right. Yeah. And Andy, the box office. Well, finally getting some budgets over $10 million, Stone had a budget of 16.5 for this film, or $37.1 million in today's dollars. This movie opened December 11th, 1987, opposite Throw Mama from the Train, Empire of the Sun, and Cold Steel. This landed in third place and stayed in the top 10 for eight weeks, barring one week where it slipped just below. It did go on to earn $43.8 million, or $98.6 million in today's dollars, giving an adjusted profit per finished minute of $492,000. And, of course, it has a lasting legacy. Yeah. 
lasting legacy it has Gordon Gecko. <laughs> bummer. All right, Andy. Well, I think it's probably time for us to take it to the mat. Ooh, let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You'll see all the movies we've ever talked about on this fair show. If you swipe over in your show notes, you tap the word flick chart. It'll take you straight to this movie in the flick chart database where you can add it to your own list and see how it stacks up to ours. First up, Wall Street or La Cage Fall. I think you're going to say Wall Street. I am. I am too. Wall Street or Platoon? <laughs> Wall Street. No. Platoon. Oh, I, say, I really? don't know what I I don't know what I said there. That Charlie Sheen. <laughs> yeah, I'll say platoon as well. Right. Wall Street or Interstellar. 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 Wall Street or the town. The town. That hasn't popped up in forever. Yeah, the town. Wall Street or M. 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 Wall Street or Life of the Party. Life of the party. Life of the party. Wall Street or the Russia House? I would say the Russia House. I will say Wall Street. I'll give it to you. Okay. Wall Street or Creep Show? All of Creep Show? <laughs> All of Creep Show is perfect. What are you saying? Okay. Of course it's I'll give Creep you show. Creep Show. I'll give you Creep Show. <laughs> Wall Street or the bank job? Uh, the bank job. I'll say the bank job. Well, that lands Wall Street in spot 245 on our chart. 245 out of 498 films, speed 498. That puts it at a 51%. Well, that's pretty good, right in the middle. Uh, mine's, it's higher on mine. I'm kind of puzzled. It, it was, it, it ended up at, um, yeah, definitely higher, uh, higher than I would give it based on my star rating. How'd it do for you? Um, it did okay. It landed in 198, spot 1985 out of 4576, which is a 57%. A little bit higher. Three. 335 out of 1491. Andy, that's a 78%. Wow. I have some re-ranking to do, like some spite ranking. I mean, it's not a bad film. I mean, No, it's really it's, not a bad yeah. film. I just had a markedly better time with Pl- Platoon, and I know I'm a bit of an outlier there. It sounds like based on the one-star reviews we read last week. Um, but I had a much better time. I expected my memory to be well-served by this movie. It was not. I remembered going into it. Uh, I remembered the movie much better. I just had more problems, more performative problems with this movie, not as an Oliver Stone film, maybe as a casting film, <laughs> casted film um, in, in some key roles that kind of dragged the whole thing down for me. So, you know, if I'm going by the algorithm at, at uh, letterbox.com slash the next reel, uh, Flickchart says this should be a four-star movie. I'm I'm thinking I'm landing right around three stars. Yeah, that's pretty much where I am. Three stars and a heart. I mean, I enjoy the film. I think it's I think it's good. Um, but yeah, it's um, it's one of those ones where I, I mean, I actually think I could easily return to it. I don't think I have too many problems with it. I don't know how often I'll return to it, though, but I still enjoy it. You know it. what? I, I'll bet, uh, I, you know, check me on this. I'll bet it's a movie that we'd like much better if we weren't doing a podcast about it. That's entirely possible if we didn't there's, have to there's think so, so much hard. About, yeah, like there's well, there's so much about this movie that I'm watching more closely than I would if I were watching it just, you know, to watch it or to introduce somebody else to it. Sure. So, uh, that so we're done with Wall Street. We're done with I think the big two, and we're cruising into what now? Next up is a film that I remember coming out 
I don't, I never saw it. And I'm curious to kind of jump into this world. Um, and it, because it, I, I think it's an interesting story. It is talk radio, which Oliver Stone did in 1988. Okay. I look forward to it. It's going to be a good show when the movie ends. Our conversation begins. Letterboxd giveth, Andy. As Letterboxd always doeth. There are some good ones. Uh, there there are, are some good ones and some long ones uh, in this in this fair catalog. But we went we went low. We did go low. Straight I went to, to one bottom. and a half, but I think you went even lower than me. I did. I went Why to the you? half stars. I have a half yeah. star by Film Vixen, who said, this movie was an hour shorter than The Wolf of Wall Street, and this felt four hours long. <laughs> <laughs> I get it. I get it. Uh, and, you know, we didn't talk about any comparisons to the spiritual sequel, Wolf of Wall Street. But it, oh, and and yeah. it, it's interesting because Oliver Stone talks about it in some of his and some of his like reflections on his dad's experience and then his experience in the 80s. And then, oh, my God, I, I like it that at one point he, he says, uh, I don't even think think there are clients on wall street anymore and versus his grandfather who always supported the client or his dad who always supports the client i thought that was funny yeah i went to uh christina who gave it a one and a half star movie and i love this my mom made me watch this and all i have to say is that charlie sheen reminded me of ben shapiro good night <laughs> <laughs> And don't forget, if you're a fan of Letterboxd, you can go to thenextreel.com slash Letterboxd and you can get a 20% discount on your pro or patron membership. Check it out. Thanks, Letterboxd. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, Go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today. <laughs> 